Welcome to the 24 Stories podcast that aims to educate, inspire and help build brands. I'm your host, Stephen Ryan, founder of 24 Stories, and I'll be joined each week by guests from a variety of industries here to tell you how they built their brands. Welcome to the latest episode of the 24 Stories podcast. This week, we're looking at the business of music and entertainment, and who better to talk about that than someone I've known probably over 20 years at this stage, Mr. Stevie G. How's it going, Steve? Stephen? I know, I just get very confusing with Stevie and Stephen and stuff like that for the next while. Exactly. Yeah, we go back. Jeez, we really go back, don't we? So, I think the first time I met you was probably 1999, I'd say. It was it? a good year, actually. We're both Manchester United fans as well. It was the year of the treble. Yeah, I think we've, we've, we're pretty aligned when it comes to the sport, aren't we? We're, we're Corinthians. Yeah, Corinthians, Cork City and Manchester United. Exactly. And we would have worked all through the years in, diff- in the same kind of arenas with Cork City. Yeah. You had me out in Fota. I did. We obviously worked together in Red FM. Yeah. And we're here now, finally. And we're here again. So this is the first time I've interviewed you. So... I kind of want to go back in the backstory, Steve, though. Like, so yeah. how does somebody get into the world of DJing to begin with? Because I know mm. there's much more to you than DJing, but how did that all kick Absolutely off? Absolutely accidentally. So it just I just fell into it. Like a lot of people just fall into what they do. Um, but I was big into music. Like when I was a boy, my uh, big, big, big passion was soccer or whatever. Yeah. And it still is, obviously. But like. When I turned about 12, I kind of realized that uh, I probably wasn't going to be good enough to play with uh, Man United or okay. whoever else. And um, I just got mad into music at the same time. I don't know what happened. It just... Were you it, listening to radio or something? Yeah, like everything. It was more um, video music was big. It was the 80s, like when I was yeah, a boy. So yeah. it would have been the whole Michael Jackson thing, like yeah. Prince... Whoever was around, like you 2 or Madonna. And of course, a lot of them were coming to Cork at the time as well. Yeah, so they came to Cork. But it was just the magic of that kind of feeling of uh, music just kind of took over. Or whatever it did, I can't explain to this day. But you wanted uh, to play it, right? like as in play the music, no. not create it? Or, or Oh yeah, no, I didn't think anything of. Like no one, there was no DJ culture, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't until Greg and Shane came along and we were teenagers that this kind of thing happened and we heard tapes in school and all this. So we've got Greg and Shane of Fish Go Deep uh, who will be renowned as Cork's pioneers when it comes to electronic music, DJing, uh, production. Um, So they had obviously started in Sir Henry's. Now we were still too young to get in there but the tapes were flying around. The mix so we were in secondary school when they were in Henry's. Yeah. This is probably around 88 or something like that, was it? Uh, yeah, it would have been the late 80s, early 90s. And we already wanted to get in there. Like, you know, yeah. we were talking about it and it was kind of seen as the spot, you know what I mean? But uh, by that stage, I had transferred from, like, say, pop music yeah. to, like, we had our own kind of, like, teenagers do. They have their own genres yeah, now. of course. Uh, so at the time, there would have been, it would have been punk originally for me. Yeah. And then hip hop gave me that energy. Uh, so it was rap really like back then and also the big thing that happened at the time was lots of the rappers were near our age rather than yeah. when, I, when I was into like the punk stuff it was like these guys were all like kind of almost they'd all come and gone like you know yeah. so it was seen as being it's like the way people now are still into you could be a kid you could be into Nirvana or the Beatles or Tupac or yes. whatever but there's something special about it when it's when it's in your generation. But that energy had come and the dance music, which Greg and Shane were playing as well uh, in, in Sweat, were, was was been fed through uh, in a very much a kind of the social media of the day, which was mixtapes. Uh, so it was word of mouth, really. Because uh, what would happen back then, Steve? Like People would pass around these tapes and so they were on sale in some shops as well, weren't they? 
Yeah, so Greg and Shane, aka Fish Go Deep, they're later to be known as Fish Go Deep, uh, had their own shop, Fish Records. There was a little shop deep south for a while as well. But there was other shops. I mean, Sean O'Sullivan, Sean Zapp had a couple of shops here. He was a DJ from around that era. There was a lot of record shops around. But you know yourself, like, it's someone buys it, but everyone, everyone else is just it. recording it. Yeah. It is pretty much like a, so- a social media. Wait, that's how music went viral back then, really. Exactly. It, you know, exactly. one fellow recorded it and then passed it to another guy or whatever. No, it didn't happen as quick. Regional music was very much strong. Even if you look at rap music in the 90s, like what Outkast were doing down in the South was very different from what NWA were doing in the yeah, West yeah. and what was happening in New York. And it's the same with... Um, if it's the same with Cork, we've always had a different sound than what's been in Dublin or yeah. Galway, and that's through DJs and also the, the live music culture. So, for example, Cork being a port, we've always had a bit of a reggae influence. Lots of people come through Cork or, or end up living here or staying here. So there's always been that, even in the rock bands in the 80s before my time, there was a kind of a dubby kind of thing going through them, dub reggae mm-hmm. kind of vibe. And in Cork, we've always traditionally liked a, a more laid back kind of sound. Yeah. Then in Dublin, we'll say... When the really banging dance music became popular in the 90s, it was much more popular in Dublin than in Cork. Uh, they were more influenced by the UK. We were more influenced by, I think, the US. Interesting. Uh, yeah. and, and maybe other cities that would have aligned with us, like Bristol and Manchester. But anyway, getting back to it, in Cork, there was definitely a sort of sound developed with Greg and Shane in Sir Henry's in the front. And down in the back room then, my colleague uh, Donkey Man, a.k.a. Mark Ring, and the late great DJ Fork would have been on the scene. Yeah. And uh, Gina Johnson, there was people like that. And then I kind of took over on Saturdays from Donkey Man. Well, I literally just fell into it. And were you still in school when that happened? Uh, pretty much just left school, turned college. And a couple of people asked me to DJ. And I was like, what do you mean DJ? I didn't even know what it was really. like. And did you know how to mix or anything? No, no, not at all. Jeez, I was DJing before. I was in the clubs before I knew how to mix. I can tell you that straight up. But like, did other people know or was that something no, that progressed as time moved what, on? What happened very quickly, what happened in a, in a few months, there was a few things happened. A bunch of us used to go up to UCC on a Friday and they yeah. had a twin turntable set up. And it was the first time my buddy Colin Murray said, come up and bring records. And I said, look, I'm not a DJ. And he said, it doesn't matter. Just bring records. You've loads of records, which I had. And uh, I brought one up and I remember putting one on and then not having to take it off to put the next one on. Yeah. Because the lads showed me how to do it. And I was like, oh my God, this is actually amazing. And I, I actually fell in love with it then straight away. But uh, I was started DJing in the Donkey's Ears bar. Just kind of did a, a DJ competition there. Again, it was just playing the stuff. That was close to City Hall, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So that was a legendary. That was the feeder bar for Henry's for a while. You yeah. know, one of the main ones. And Donkey Man, the DJ I mentioned, it's his family. Um, and Michelle, his sister, would have been the, the boss there. So she gave me my first opportunity. And she was also uh, just about to marry Sean from Henry, Sean O'Neill. So they, they're was great the friends of mine. Henry's, yeah, so yeah. he's the main. Yeah. So it all was kind of like linked up and uh, I just fell into it by chance. Oh, yeah. Donkeyman couldn't turn up on a Thursday and they just asked me to come in. No, I was literally DJing two weeks. I didn't even know. So you were DJing in the bar and then you were asked to go to, uh, to one of the most yeah. famous clubs actually across Europe at the time. Exactly. Nearly. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it was good because I didn't have time to get nervous. Yeah. But um it was kind of, that was the Holy Grail. Like yeah. it was like going from playing in Corinthians to playing in Old yeah, Trafford yeah. in a couple of weeks. But you went to college at the same time. So I'm guessing still in the back of your mind, you're like, this is only an old hobby. Oh yeah. I'm going to do something else. I should have, I should have uh, kept that. I should have kept that attitude. <laughs> yeah. So that was it. It really took off. And I was in college and I went to the States at the end of my last year in college. And I've been DJing 
I already was about to get some gigs around the country and stuff. But I came back and I was like, oh, I'll just do this for a while. But mm-hmm. I, I was going to be journalism was what was that I was what you wanted at. to get into yeah but they had none in UCC so you would have had to go and do a postgrad or whatever it's called a master's yeah. in TCU or wherever it was and I was so busy that summer and I started working in, in Comet in the record shop and I was just literally DJing non-stop when September and October had come I was like this is it like you know I'm actually yeah. doing and I was writing at the time as well I was doing a lot of writing for I was always writing on and off with the Echo which mm. I still do uh, but I was writing for a lot of magazines at the time. No, a lot of magazines it. and stuff like that. Yeah, Blues and Soul, like it's the yeah. longest running black music magazine in the world. But yeah. I started writing with them. No, it was all voluntary just to get, yeah, get, get in the there. Yeah, out there as well. But uh, yeah, so that all happened. And sure, the next thing I know, it's like that's what I was doing. So how does it work then, Steve? Like, because you're working for all these different venues, are you a kind of sole trader then back then? Like, how, like then and always, yeah, uh, unfortunately, in some ways. No, I'm terrible at business. Yeah, as we later find out. But I do like to have the uh, like it's a one-on-one relationship with everyone: promoters, yeah, brands, clubs, everyone. No, we didn't really have the infrastructure back then. It w- and it was literally like it was pretty much pre-internet as well. Yeah, like I remember literally being on the street here in the South Malware. Remember those phone cards? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember going out in the winter and like having a, a phone card that you get about 30 phone calls of it and yeah. literally just ringing all the people in Dublin going like, I'll be here Friday 11 o'clock. I don't know how we actually survived back it's then. It's funny, like, yeah. Because you're getting off a train, you're arriving at a club and like if that was a, a miscommunication, yeah, I didn't even have somewhere to stay some of the times, <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I always stay with my buddies, whatever. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of that, so... I have to say I was always looking at it very much a, a kind of, uh, I was always doing that kind of networking thing. Like mm. I said, social media. So I, I took inspiration from Greg and Shane and I was doing the mixtapes straight away. And mm. even in the infrastructure at the time in Cork, which was coming from nothing really. Yeah. Um, In the 90s, there was that sort of time when people started doing flyers properly. Yeah. It was always part of the culture, the music culture, posters and flyers, very yeah. much DIY aesthetic. But it really kind of took off and people started taking more of a, almost like a more professional approach in yes. the 90s. And it was also a time when lots of our peers who weren't much older or the same age as us started opening their own shops. So there was like Mandy had a La Soul and Religion clothes shop. Lulu had prime time. Yeah. Um, and some of our friends took over the bars like Joe and Dennis ended up with the Bodega. Yeah. A newer age kind of came through, you know. Yeah, yeah. So... I don't know. I mean, obviously, it was a bit of Celtic Tiger there as well. But it was the first time that I could remember where um, people wanted to be in Cork. All my friends in Limerick and Galway and stuff wanted to move down here. Whereas when I was younger, all my older friends were like, oh, I got to go to London and Dublin. So it seemed to be a kind of the place to be. And obviously, we definitely felt we had that in the club, in the nightclub, like, you know. And to put it into perspective back then, Steve, so like in the 90s, we have a good few younger listeners to this as well. Like, the nightclub industry was completely different to what it is now. I mean, you had nightclubs everywhere, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, there was spaces. Like, I'm doing a project with Cork Life Centre at the moment with teenagers. Yeah. About spaces and the lack of spaces. And I I feel really strongly about that. The young people, the teenagers, and even the early 20s and whatever. And we all know about the barriers to, like, even getting a place for rent. When I was, sort of, 20, I could move out, no problem, and it was cheap. You could get an apartment in town. You get a part-time job and survive. Everything was cheap or whatever. 
but you could go to places too and you could actually make your mistakes. Like I told you, I wasn't mixing or anything, yeah, right? yeah. which is an essential part of DJing, you know. But I was still DJing in the clubs when I learned to do that at home and I was practicing all the time and I had, I actually learned it myself in the end. I had a breakthrough. But I had the space to do it at home or in the club. Yeah. Like and bars, we had loads. Like what the Donkey's Ears was doing like seven nights a week, they would have DJs and lots of them wouldn't have been, we'll say, club DJs. Yeah. Like you've a scene of reggae, of soul, of hip hop, mm. of even whatever, metal, other sort of sounds. And this was repeated all over Cork and the country and elsewhere, but they don't have the spaces now. And I think that's unfortunate. It's something we have to kind of, um, we have to talk about because if they're not into sport, it's hard for them to get their kind of, uh, to get their lane, you know? Um, And like, they're all into gaming. They're all into a lot of other stuff, but there there has to be, I think, more music avenues because it's different now. Everyone back then wanted to be a DJ, but now a lot of them can be producers and it's quite cheap. Like back in the day, I would have had to buy decks, buy records, buy a big drum machine sampler. Yeah. It was all expensive. Uh, I was working so I could do it. But most kids know you can actually do a lot on your phone or on a really cheap laptop. So it's kind of interesting now and it's actually more powerful that even though everyone always goes on about, oh, 90s in Cork was brilliant, brilliant, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. For me, there's actually more possibilities now. And there's more cultures around, obviously, in Cork course, and elsewhere. Yeah. They're more uh, technically... Um, efficient and have more expertise but they're building up different skills that can be uh, used with music as well so like there's a community and I should mention record shops because a record shop is more than just where you buy records mm -hmm. it's where you'd find out what the gigs were who mm -hmm. the people were oh I'm looking for a person to play bass or I'm looking for a person to design a flyer but I do feel for the young people now that uh, sometimes it, it's it's frustrating when I see that they don't have the time to to do that now they can still do all the practicing or whatever but like being able to do it in a place made yeah. for it like a bar or something is pretty cool like you know and and i think it's uh it's something we have to look at as a country but you became well known even outside of cork like in dublin quite quick is it because you were kind of one of the first to kind of move forward with kind of r&b and yeah hop and stuff it, it was simple really to be honest all of my gigs came from the one weekend where Fela was in cork Oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember 95, that. 95, was it? Yeah, so we did an after party in Sir Henry's and everyone from all around the country was there and yeah. I just played a really good set. It was like four or five in the morning and everyone was probably, yeah. do you know what I mean, like pretty pretty wrecked. But uh, If anyone has ever been to the after parties in Sir Henry's, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's been some good ones over Downstairs, the years. Downstairs, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I remember um, Martin Thomas, he's since passed away. Uh, there was him and his guy Jimmy. They were running a really cool night in the pod and the pod was just on the scene. So John Reynolds was running the pod. He actually died as well. So John he Reynolds ended up yeah. setting up the electric picnic. Mm. So they asked me to come up there. There was Owen and Jay were asking me to come up to Reroad. They ended up coming down to Cork and taking over the Bodega and the Savoy. So you were up and down on the, the, yeah, the I was literally up and down every week, I think, for years. So it was Galway would have been every second Sunday and Dublin pretty much every Friday for years because I was in Sir Henry's on a Saturday. But at the time, as you say, it was more like Dublin didn't really have that scene yeah. so what I was I was in my own lane up there a little bit that helped so yeah it was mainly Dublin Galway Limerick and Waterford and Belfast as well for, for quite a bit so but did yeah. you know at that point then this is a career here now I'm, I'm, well yeah I mean or did you ever even think about it I never thought about it really yeah. but I knew I was doing music but yeah. I had been 
like I had been looking at the radio side of things because I was doing that for, for four or five years on pirate radio here. On radio friendly. And I, I did take a decision in 2000 to just put that, put a lid on that and to to, to try to go more professionally at that because yeah. I knew there was a new station starting. Yeah. So I did this massive proposal, uh, like 20 or 30 pages proposal. I don't know why. Cause so the, you actually the, pitched to them? Yeah, yeah. I pitched so we're, to we're them. talking about Coxford I, FM here, I presume. Yeah. I knew they were going to do a hip hop show. Yeah. And I couldn't imagine it not being me. Yeah. And they just rang me and just said, look, come on in for an interview. And I thought I was going to be asked questions and they were literally just giving it to me. So I was delighted with that. And I got to say a shout out too to Tony D who also passed away. He was a DJ from Dublin. He's more a regular kind of um, radio kind of guy, but he helped me put a demo together. But again, I think I would have got it anyway. But yeah, so I was looking then outside just, you know, club nights and stuff like that. Because I remember, if I, if I, just before the, I say, before Red FM started, I remember in the late 90s, I was getting into dance music and stuff myself. And I, I remember listening to Mickey Mack on, on, on 2FM yeah, yeah. Uh, on a Saturday night for anyone that's old enough will remember Mickey. And uh, I remember him saying, there's this top DJ from Cork who's really, really good, Stevie G. You need wow. to check him out. And I, and I remember he also mentioned Mark Walsh, you know him, and yeah. all of you guys were basically inside in, in the one nightclub. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and so Greg and Shane, would have played yeah. a lot of their stuff. So com- three completely different rooms. Yeah. It was massive. Like people probably don't understand how big it was at the time in terms of the bus loads coming from Limerick and... Waterford and Dublin. Yeah. yeah, and that's just a dance scene. So we had the indie scene, which was there which before. Was scene, yeah. yeah, and even before that, there was like a big rock indie scene yeah. Yeah. in Cork. So the variety is a big thing. I yeah. think it's a, an important thing in a in a city or in anywhere. And even now, you know, there's people interested in all sorts of different kind of music. But you had a lot of respect because I remember one of the very wonderful earliest memories I have of, of sitting down with you. I think we were having a cup of tea inside in the Grand Prix Hotel. Noreen Hennessy, who was the promoter in, in Henry's at the time as well. We were all sitting down. And the next thing, this big box arrives for you. And I'm like, what's inside in the box? And there is... From Sony Records, yeah. all the latest tracks before they come out. So this is another thing that I'd say doesn't probably happen to them. Correct me if I'm wrong, no, but like, gone, yeah. like things get it's released digital. on Spotify, you know, or YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Whereas back then, that proved, you were getting it beforehand. That proved the problem in the end because uh, I used Grand Parade Hotel as my mailing address because it was obviously it's stuff that you didn't want yeah. arriving in some dodgy apartment. In of town. course, yeah. And um, it was great. It was solid. It was 24 hours. So yeah. it was brilliant. And Sony and all of these guys, especially in the UK, and when I was writing with Blues and Soul, lots of the international labels, yeah. so Giant Steps in America were distributing all these artists like Jill Scott, Alicia Keys and stuff. Before they were even coming out, they were sending me this stuff Whoa. from the States and I was reviewing it for Blues and Soul before it was even out yeah. anywhere in, in Europe. And I would get boxes and boxes. And to be honest, it was a great way of building up your record collection. But uh, when I did lend, when I did end up leaving in Sir Henry's, in fairness, uh, they they looked after the mail for me. But yeah. I was just like, and eventually the place was gone. So there's probably still stuff <laughs> arriving there. But yeah. um, I I use Red FM as my address now. But the physical side of music changed obviously in that time. No, it came back since. It's interesting. Uh, how it the changes, vinyl yeah. revival or yeah. whatever. The digital, it's, it's all digital. Obviously, all the promo side of it is pretty much digital. You still get physical stuff, but um. That totally changed. And I embraced it, to be honest. I was always kind of um, passionate about records, but like the physical side of it. I remember when I first moved to our house, 
in 2004, like my back was already busted up enough from carrying the stuff around. Yeah. But I never forget. And I had two of the big bouncers from the Savoy, including Luke, helping me, like moving, the actual moving like tens of thousands of records is just like, it's the worst thing. And even when Marvin was about to be born, I had to move again from Lola's room now up to the attic, even just moving them up one floor. So I dread ever moving again. And I'm actually, I'm glad that I've kind of cut out my vinyl addiction anyway, you know, so I, I'm just an expensive gonna... hobby. It's, yeah, but, well, it wasn't a hobby. Yeah. That was a career, but like, yeah, you know, but in the early days, like, I know I dabbled in it myself and yeah. you'd go into some of the record shops and you'd pick up a couple and... I still, to this day, I never really was interested in buying something to just hang it on the wall. Yeah. Even though I love the whole aesthetic side yeah. of it. Um. So in the last 10 years, I finally kind of got the grips with it and just like, because you start to think about like, hang on in 20 or 30 years, mm. like, what am I going to do? Bring this stuff or, well, I hope to live longer than that. But you know what I mean? You're yeah, kind of thinking like, yeah. what am I, where's this actually going? Now? going and now? I have like 30 or 40,000 tunes. Whoa. And I'm DJing 99% of the time digitally. Yeah. So it's on a MacBook the and there's 30,000 tunes. Yeah. And the stuff is there and I use it at home yeah. and I'm still sampling them and I listen to them. But like the physical side of dragging them around the country like I used to, yeah. that's very much a young, a young person's game. So in the end of 2001, you left Henry's. Yeah, we all left at the same time. And a a lot happened at the same time. The Savoy had come on the scene. Which was huge. And the Red FM thing was just starting as well. Yeah, yeah. So, like, there was a couple of things kind of aligned, I suppose, at the the same time. So, it was like a new chapter for you. Yeah. And originally, I I was quite happy to do my Fridays in the Savoy and Saturdays in Henry's. It caused a bit of friction and I walked out at one stage. uh, And then we kind of negotiated a kind of... um, for me to come back in but in the end we just felt a little bit without getting into it yeah we all just felt myself and greg and chain and freak scene as well it wasn't a frills it was an underground no, club God, yeah. you know it like, really was sweet you, like you didn't was it, you didn't need to like we'll say at the time it was celtic tiger so you had all the fancy places which i mentioned like the pod which is really like swish in dublin yeah. but even the bars in cork like the bodega and all yeah, that like sir nice henry's side. never needed to be um, aesthetically beautiful. It was just dark underground club. But there was certain stuff that there was money coming in and we just felt that it could be kind of... Um, and there was, there was a little bit of a one night on Kerry Shander that kind of changed the door price at the last minute. So we just decided I remember. enough was enough. But look, things move on and everything yeah. is cool and we ended up running out at the peak, you know. And it was a huge night. surprise because it was the 13th yeah. birthday party. I have mm. a t-shirt at home because I used to do the promotions at the time so I was doing the flyers and the posters for the club. Like I was just delighted to be there for because I'd been there nine years DJing mm. and many more years before that when I was like underage with the fake ID. But yeah, I just felt that it had run its course and the Savoy was around as well so we had an option at least and uh, a different era started, you know. It was, and it was pretty... that was kind of the start of jammed in as well for you. Yeah, that was so... that was like your own night where you stood by yourself and there was it was yeah. different to sweat where you were kind of in the back room. This was the main room for you. Yeah, I never saw the music as being front room music, my music, but it had become so commercially powerful at the yeah. time that it made sense to go to the main room. Yeah. So we set up jam and I got a lot of the younger DJs involved, like uh, Colin, Colin Kennefick. Yeah. And Susie Kay, who was only about 11 or 12, I'd seen her in Pirate Radio with Keith Sinnott and we got her to do Jam Junior. So Jam Junior, again, was born out of frustration, What I, which I've always seen to this day is that I don't think young people are kind of respected. So we we were bringing, we were doing teenage parties for Junior Night, uh, Junior Certain Night in Henry's. Mm. 
and all the kids would be in there and the place is full, like 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock and at 10 o'clock they were being shouted at like, get out because they wanted to turn the main club on. Because I I had seen it, I've been there long enough to see the 14-year-olds at junior night suddenly being the 18-year-olds or the 16, 17, 18-year-olds and they are your kind of like yeah. Your your base, you know, yeah. your hardcore crowd, and if you're getting them into it when they're fourteen, by the time they're eighteen, they're loyal to you, and some of them are going to be DJing with you, some of them are break dancers, some of them are whatever. So when I set up Jam, and in fairness to um, my ex girlfriend Susan, she said, "Why don't you do Jam Junior?" And I was like, "This is actually genius." So we did, we mirrored the whole thing, and it was like it was the first real teenage party I think in Cork which was treated like everything. We put a lot of money into the yeah. promotion, the flyers, uh, live acts. Everyone was teenager except me. Uh, and I probably was uh, mentally. But everyone, the break dancers, there was DJs, there was um, rappers, uh, singers, uh, DJs in the other room who I ended up learning off myself years later, like Ian Ring, we've a label together. He started off as, a, again, a kid. And loads of DJs. And it was in the Savoy, which is like, best venue in Cork when it's full yeah. so there was uh, it was amazing and we even booked like really big names like Trevor Nelson was doing Jam yeah. and Jam Junior actually Trevor Nelson I had to bail him out because he's like the most experienced DJ in R&B in the whole Britain and, and big Ireland and BBC and stuff and, yeah. exactly but he, he like I, I was friends with him and we'd done loads of parties together all over Ireland for years and I'll never forget a Jam Junior he turned around to me one night and he goes come here, what am I going to do here? Like, he couldn't read that crowd. He wasn't used to playing to young crowd. Yeah, yeah. And I just said, listen, man, whatever's on MTV. Because the cool thing about young people is they don't care about, like, five years ago. A year ago as old to them. Exactly. So it's really kind of like, it's a really cool dynamic sometimes. And I still think about that, that they're not weighed down by the history. Yeah, yeah. Like, if there is 14-year-olds listening to this, they're going to be bored yeah. out of their mind. Yeah. But that's cool. And it's cool that they want their thing. That's why their zone is in TikTok yeah. or in, in whatever else it is in. And when sort of some parents started suddenly listening to Eminem and stuff, like that was game over. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's it's like you don't want to be listening to what your parents are into. And I see it with my own kids or whatever. Yeah. But I, I thought Jam Jr. was really like we had a good legacy. And at the time, then a different generation came up. Like GMC came up. He would have been in Jam Jr., but he went and brought his own kind of when they, when that Eminem movie came out, yeah, 8 Mile, yeah, yeah. everyone suddenly wanted to go from being a DJ to being a rapper overnight. It just changes, isn't it? And yeah. it actually happened practically over, remember, like every yeah. every person in Cork and then a whole generation of brilliant rappers came out from Cork and it was cool. Uh, but that was fun. And the other thing again is that you didn't need to be, you didn't need anything to be a rapper. Like, yeah. You just needed your, your moat and to be able to talk gibberish, which most people can in Cork anyway. The Savoy lasted a few years, but then did, did it kind of go belly up for a bit or what happened there? Because mm. it, it closed for a while, didn't it? I kind of more or less walked from it again in 2006 when the former Savoy, um, man behind the Savoy, uh, Joe Kelly, asked me to get involved in another project, The Path, which is 2007. Yeah. Now, we had been planning that. We signed it up in 2007 and that was... So I decided, out of respect anyway, I was like, look, I'm going to another place. Yeah. I'll leave. But the writing was on the wall. I did end up going back and playing on and off in the Savoy till they... Cl- I mean, they must have went to about 2017 in the end or 2016. Yeah, they, were, they were closed and then they opened up again, I think. Yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of different changes. Yeah. And we had lots of good gigs in that time, like Wu-Tang were there, Janelle Monet, uh, Sheik. They all went to the Savoy. They Jazzy were all Jeff memorable and, yeah. gigs, yeah. But at the time, 
like in our first era, there was the real golden age, in my opinion. Like I wasn't around, obviously, in the 60s when the Rolling Stones were there. But when we had the Public Enemy, the De La Souls and the Jazzy yeah, Jeff and yeah. Gil Scott Heron and all these people. But I ended up being the Saturday resident DJ there in the later years. And it was great. It was a d- different generation. We're going there. But it was just Saturdays that was popping at the time. That was maybe 2015, 2016. But we had since gone to the path and that had come and gone. So we opened in 2008 and we went till 2014. So you were involved in the ownership of, of the pub. That was your yeah. first kind of yeah. venture into the other side where you'd be booking the acts as yeah. such. Would you, like, well, I was booking them all the time. Okay. I would have been involved, but it was never... Like, you weren't the owner of the club. It like, wasn't my money, you know yes. what I mean? So I would have always just said to whoever, this is who we want. Yeah. You do all the stuff. Yeah. And to be honest, that's the way it should have stayed because yeah. that's what I'm good at. Yeah. Identifying the artists yeah. and meeting them and greeting them and going for dinner with them and sort of talking music to them. Yeah. Um, but uh, the business side of it, yeah, we just opened at the bad time. Now, the PAV had a big legacy, in my opinion, particularly huge. with um, lots of great bands. And what I always have a lot of pride about, when we went in in 2008, we had a kind of a soft opening. And I never forget three or four of the people who were collecting glasses that night. One or two of them have run festivals. They've been in bands themselves. Oh. And everyone who went through that building ended up becoming like a DJ or a promoter or in a band or a sound engineer or whatever. So that that was a big, big thing. And some of them are doing festivals to this day. Uh, so it was a really good place. And these were all young people again who but were... But you uh, brought back an old vibe to the place because it was originally a cinema and a kind yeah, of theatre. Again, it's a frustrating thing. Like, I don't think music culture is valued enough in Ireland that, like, that place was sitting there with this... I mean, you know what it looked like. Yeah. It still does. I think Benny's going in there now. And it's like, it's aesthetically... This is a cinema that was opened in 1920, 21, 100 years ago, yeah, right? Yeah. Effectively. Beautiful place. And it was sitting there and it wasn't even listed. So, like, you could yeah. go in there and just take the roof off the place and make some generic kind yeah. of high street shop and wreck it. And, and I just think, like, because from way... B- I mean, we even had on um, Cork Heritage Day, I think we had one of the cinematographer or one of the guys whose dad was the main cinema guy in the 50s or yeah, whatever in the yeah, heyday. Yeah. He was in te- doing talks. And, like, there's a lot of history that, like, I think we should kind of celebrate more. And not, not from a nostalgia point of view, but use it as in the modern era of use these places as cultural places. Like, I'm just delighted that it's Benny going there now doing something yes. that's going to be um, culturally significant rather than just... Uh, and again, I, I'm all for bringing... I, I think we should have more uh, the shops in the city because I think Patrick Street is just like... It's it's, it's a shame to see it all boarded yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would love if... Like, it would be a cool place for a, a Zara or whatever... But yeah. like there's other brilliant buildings that you could have uh, some of the, the, the shops, the high street or the, the domestic ones. Um, and I think it would all be really complimentary then if you had the, the music culture in there, the shops, the restaurants, the yeah. bars. I mean, like we've got this brilliant street with massive open spaces and it's like you kind of go down there at night and it's a bit like the end of the world. But the have, sorry, I mean, we had so much good stuff. We had the XX before they really, and people like Imelda May, who were nobodies, were coming in there. And Hosier did, didn't Then they were, Hosier, yeah, he shot the video, Brendan County shot the video in Cork that day. And he came in to play in the Pav Bar to like and it was about Harry, 20 yeah, people. Yeah, because I remember Joe Kelly was telling me there was only about yeah. six people in the band. He yeah. was playing in the corner. 
This is before he became this massive global superstar. Yeah, and that happened very quickly for him too. And of course, we memorably had Kanye West in there as well, which was a, was a bit like? of a highlight. That was amazing. Yeah, that it must have been big buzz for you. Oh, it was brilliant, yeah. Because I, I knew about it, but I couldn't tell anyone because yeah. everyone would have turned up. Yeah. And if he didn't turn up then, I would look yeah. like an idiot. And also, it would have been a yeah. public safety situation. I think um, everyone thought the same the following year because I yeah. remember going to Snoop Dogg in, in, the, yeah. in the marquee and we all went to the pavilion afterwards and we all <laughs> thought he was going to turn up. Yeah, well, I, I definitely did kind of help that rumour on yeah. a bit. The same, <laughs> that was a clever the same with the 50 cent one. <laughs> yeah. But um, but yeah, it was cool. And he was really actually totally not like his uh, public persona. I've told the story so many times, but five big SUV cars were pulling up at, I think it was 11, they said, outside Patrick Street. So go to the third car. And uh, he'll be there. Yeah. And I I went over to the third car and all these huge security guys. He's tiny, like. Is he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but he was he was really This cool. was pre-Kim uh, Kardashian and all that kind of Pre-Kim stuff. Pre-Kim Kardashian, yeah. It was just around the time he was just about to go go wild on the Taylor Swift thing. So, he had released his 808s and Heartbreaks thing, which is very influential. But he was going through a kind of... um. He wasn't quite the Kanye we know today. That yeah, this was like yeah. Outspoken. Yeah. But look... He was he was real gentle. He was nice to you, like I was dead sound. Very uh, couldn't have been nicer. And I was talking to him for a couple of minutes, but I didn't. Uh, I never bothered these people. I just said, "Look, what do you want?" And leave them. Got a terrible, awkward photo then, which is really bad photo. But you've but met a good few of them over the years. I mean, you played with Destiny's Child. And yeah, Destiny's Child. So did you get to uh, talk to Beyonce? Not really. No, they did sign something though, which yeah. is cool. But um, but I was right, like from here to here to you away, and I was just she was only like nineteen at the time. Yeah. But I never forget watching them the way that they were performing. I couldn't believe because they had like high heels on and the dancing and yeah. the choreography. Like most of the acts that I'd seen before that up close were just rap acts and whatever Course. or live yeah. acts. And you could tell then, like I think everyone knew that she was going to be. Uh, yeah. A megastar. And even Kelly Rowland herself has that in her as well, you yeah. know what I mean? But like to just see it right on stage was was, was amazing. But, so um, when Live at the Marquee started in 2005, it must have been a, like big for you as well. All these things kind of coincided. Yeah. So that was the level, like I told you that the hip hop had got so commercial in the yeah. early 2000s. So then you had when Live at the Marquee started. I remember down there, Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, Diana Ross, Al Green in the first year. Hip hop was big enough to have the Kanye and Snoop and Jay Z, and I did all those warm ups, and it was really cool. And uh, I gotta say, fair play to Peter Aiken for for really investing in Cork in that regard. And no, since uh, Shane from Independence and and MCD are yeah. doing Independent Park, and we had Lauren Hill down there. That's right. Um, and it's really good that two of the big promoters in the country uh, like really want to do stuff here. So I do think we do need our event center so we can do this all year yeah. round. But I think there's an appetite in Cork, you know, like, you know what it's like during the summer there. We're going up every week. There's matches on. We've got the ladies and the men in all sports, right? So there's yeah. people going up to Dublin every week for matches in Gaelic and rugby and soccer all year round. Gigs all the time. And like lots of people, even in Limerick or in Kerry or in Waterford, they much prefer to come down okay. here. Yeah. Even down in Altogether Now, which the late great John Reynolds, again, it was his vision he had the electric picnic and before he died, he set up all together now down in Waterford. I go down and drive down there in just over an hour, just outside Don Garvin. Yeah. And I'm down at a festival there and it's it's a, it's much better for people to come to, from yeah. Cork to go to a festival in Cork or Waterford. Like it, It's cool going to Dublin, yeah. but like we're going to a lot of festivals north of Dublin as well and Mead all the time and it's stuff, stuff like that that I do think Cork 
is ideally place. People love coming down here. We all yeah. know that. So obviously we've got the big Parky Creeve gigs. Um, we've got uh, Independent Park and we have the marquee at least next summer. I do think Cork needs a bit more uh, infrastructural investment in that. And I think we need to look at like uh, music venues as not just like drinking dens because there is that part of it. Mm. Like lots of the stuff that I mentioned, you know, like lots of people don't even drink in them. And especially if you look at uh, young people, it's a cool outlet for, for doing stuff that, that's not tied to drink. Yeah. And you can take that whole side of it out of it. Like when you were in the pavilion, did you ever get grants from the not, arts council or anything like not, that? Not a hope, no. It's just seen as a different thing. No, in fairness, like I did my first ever application this summer, the summer gone by for an arts council thing. No, it failed miserably. Yeah. But it's just like, I we never had the mentality. So yeah. it was just always like in our kind of music, which I do think is cult- culturally significant. Yeah. I would have paid for everything through DJing, we'll say. Yes. So if I'm producing music, I'll pay for that through that. If I'm working with young people, it was mostly voluntary for many years. And now I'm trying to set that up where I'm doing some stuff with uh, Faroga, ETB. I was working with Cork Migrant Centre. I moved on from that. I've always done some little bits in the cabin. So lots of my work, which I would see going forward, is what I've been trying to do for the last five years, 10 years, is do uh, youth work. And some of that it definitely has to be funded or whatever. But I've noticed even... I started working quite a lot with um, different kids and young adults from, we'll say, who've got additional needs. And I, I couldn't believe that when I started working with some of these people, just doing parties and stuff, yeah, and yeah. even teaching some of the kids that uh, the funding and stuff is practically non-existent in lots yeah. of them. Yeah. Uh, unless you're in the kind of certain, there's certain realms that the government do, but there's other people that are not. And I'm like, whatever about me working in music or whatever, I'm like, these are the people who really, really need, need. yeah. There's so much talent amongst young people from different backgrounds, whether they're from traveler background, whether they're from direct provision, and even from kids who are, uh, again, have different additional needs. They mightn't even fit into that. And that's what fair play to Cork Life Centre and all that. People mightn't fit into our educational system, but there's other outlets that they're creating that are making um, opportunities for people to to go in a different zone because there seems to be funds available for lots of stuff. Um, I think it would be cool if there was more um, more stuff backed really and invested in, in that regard. Do you find it frustrating so when you see like other kind of things like let's say operas and musicals or classical or yeah, look, they always tend to get funding? Yeah. No, in fairness, I totally have to say respect because it's all the arts are, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, it's the way it should be. Like I would say to bring the other stuff up next to it and to, and in fairness, Kirk Adarka got on to me recently because they want me to, I'm I'm doing some diversity and inclusion work with them because they they work in a kind of a situation and they're a theatre company from Cork who've been going for 30 years. Now, they've always brought theatre to the people. Yeah. They've been doing, they did shows in Sir Henry's. I mean, Killian Murphy started his career effectively with them in Disco Pigs. But yeah. they've done shows in different physical places that they've told me, they were like, listen, we do a casting call mm. and with, with our best intentions, all the people who are coming in are, are still white middle class people. Bit of an echo chamber where they're talking to themselves. Yeah. Exactly. So they asked me to, so I'm I'm doing a bit of, we'll say, I don't know, community outreach, yeah. all that kind of yeah. stuff with them, diversity and inclusion. And we're actively going, and we've already found an artist, uh, Neo Gilson, South African woman living here in Cork now, who's doing a project with them. And I, I was delighted that these guys just, within weeks, we had moved on this and they were like, 
this is going to be backed. She's going to have our support. This yeah. show is going to happen. And they want me to, to link up with other, I don't know, so if there's anyone listening from different kind of marginalized groups yeah. are interested in theatre, give me a show. Music it's and sport kind of brings people together. It doesn't yeah. matter your background. And like, I hate going back to Henry's again, but it, in one way, it was a bit of a mixture of society, wasn't it? And that's what's lacking in a lot of the current kind of venues that you have today. Maybe, like, I would look at, like, I'd still look at music and soccer from a romantic point of view of yeah. the way it comes together. I mean, I honestly grew up never looking at anyone differently, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. But other people can, can latch on to the worst side of it and make it. Of course. So you've got right-wing groups who have latched on to football over the years. But I will say this much, and it was before I ever had a conversation about it, I remember the dance floor situation in, say, Sir Henry's or in the clubland. Yeah. In the, whenever it was, when we were growing up, growing up, different people, different kinds, different sexualities or whatever. And yeah. it literally, I have to say, it was a safe space, so to speak, it right? Was, yeah. So I'm doing a bit of work with Safe Gigs Ireland at the moment, uh, through the Sexual Violence Centre in Cork. And they are doing lots of brilliant work on, on some of the stuff that's happening in venues mm. when they're open. Mm. And, Trying to raise awareness that like that we say a nightclub or any night venue has to be a safe space that like and people are are talking about like sexual assault here. Yeah. And people's mental view of sexual assault. No, it's not just physical, you know. Yes, of course. And there's there's other like just different kind of harassments that yeah. but I will have to say straight up hand on heart that like I never I never grew up in a space where that was tolerated. Like yeah. and uh, it's brilliant that this has been highlighted now. Because it obviously is a problem still. This obviously, is happening. Yeah. But, but we all also have to look at it like the early 90s, like where homosexuality was technically illegal in That's Ireland. Right, yeah. That culture was contributing to the club scene for years before I was here. And there was spaces in Cork. Especially and there was people in Cork. and stuff like Absolutely, that. Absolutely. That's yeah. where it created. And there was also people in Cork doing stuff like the Key Co-op and stuff. have been doing amazing stuff for years and mm. offering these spaces. And in the best of times, I don't think anyone's going to be going to be fighting or anything like yeah. that. Like Henry's never a place where there was fighting or no. it wouldn't be a place where there was people like having fights over girls. No, or it was fellas hugging each other and they didn't know exactly. they were hugging each other over. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, there could have been <laughs> other reasons for that. Story. Yeah, but <laughs> we won't go into that now. So like, how did the path finish? Like what happened? Did you run out like in terms of like, was it just uh, a struggle? Like what happened? Yeah, so like 2008, but literally uh, yeah. things hit the wall for the world economy at the same time. Now, we were tied into a big rent and yeah. a massive, we did a massive investment there. We did a beautiful job on the bar. You got rid of the old dingy carpet that was there on the previous Oh, club. man. Yeah. We did a fantastic job and fair play to Joe. Like, he's brilliant with all that. And Joe and Pat, they were great. Like Pat was in the three, lobby, wasn't it? Yeah, so yeah. we had three artists in there as well. Like, three of us were kind of more artistic. And there was we, no business mind there. Yeah, no, in fairness to Joe, he's gone on to some really good success with, yeah. like, he does all live at St. Luke's and all yeah. that since. Yeah. And, and he already had the Bariga and the Savoy and all That's that. That's right, of course. But let's just say... It was probably bad timing. A lot of things changed. A lot of people moved to Australia at the same yeah. time for whatever reason. It was just an economic uh, bad times. But I mean, we, we got creative in there um, and we we did some really good stuff. But in the end, it just became too much. No, luckily, um, it happened. Uh, I was still young enough to be able to do other stuff. I moved from full time to part time in red at the same time as also uh, at the end, say 2014, but it has given me opportunities to do all that kind of youth stuff, which is what I, where I see things going in the next 10 or 20 years for me anyway. 
So go back to Red. You just mentioned Red. It's coming up to 20 years now wow. of the station. Yeah. Seems like yesterday in many ways. It was a brand, it was brand, kind of brand new, kind of fresh sound. It was young. Mm. You you were, you came in on the Saturday night. You had yeah. like so Greg and Shane actually were brought in later, yeah, I yeah. think. I don't think they were in at the start. A couple but, of years later. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there was all this kind of young, fresh sound. Yeah, so Black on Red started, which is really good, and it really got me out to a bigger audience. Yeah. Uh, there was lots of stuff they did. No, to be honest, over the years, it's more. it was more a youth station at the of time. Of course it was, yeah. It got more, we had Victor Linder and Charlie Wolf and all these people. Charlie Wolf, yeah. For me, they've always kind of let me up. Let me go with it. I did do mainstream radio for ten years. I I did so, do the drive and all that. But like, so when like yeah, because <laughs> you started doing the Saturday night, and then all of a sudden, yeah, you were at five o'clock in the day doing traffic. Yeah, so they they got me in fairness to Henry, uh, the late great Henry Condon. Yeah, he sort of saw that radio was becoming more personality driven at the time. Yeah. So when I grew up, all the radio was like, hey, this is the radio. The device, yeah. So that had changed and people were more comfortable with, uh, it must be some sort of colonial thing in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. like people Atlantic 252 kind of stuff. I remember even being on Radio Friendly <laughs> in the 90s and people were like, why are you talking like that? And I was like, this is how I talk. <laughs> and it's like people were so kind of like in Ireland, there's yeah. something about it. And I've seen it even with rap music. Yeah. Like People are so like, oh, uncomfortable and then it actually got it got it went the other way because in Cork all the kind of the north side rap or whatever yeah, became yeah. so popular that there was even guys from different parts of town were kind of hamming Trying up the north up. side yeah, yeah. I know it happens even with the Dublin accent and it happens with different so this it's funny the way it goes so he knew I had a kind of a profile we'll say with the clubs and everything yeah and yeah and he was kind of right but I would say look I'm uncomfortable with it yeah but he said, look, you never have to play what you don't want to play and you never have to talk about anything you don't like. So there was one or two t- times that I'd be, be playing maybe music that it was grand music, but it's not my kind of music. Yeah, like Gold's Load said, or something like that. Like, something not like. really like that. It was something like, you know, like someone like Damien Rice, it's brilliant music. Yeah. He's great, but I wouldn't be going to go, hey, this is because like people know that where my heart <laughs> yeah. is, you know. No, yeah. it's just not my yeah. vibe. Like. Yeah. yeah. No, he, he did sell it to me and said, look, when you're whatever... Do you want to be in the clubs or whatever? Like, ironically, I still am if they're open. But I did quite well at it, to be honest, for a certain time. And then I became, you kind of go, I went into cruise control because I was in there all the time, like six days a week. And I also have to say that the traveling around the country, I put all, a lid on all that. Yes. And now I kept doing the festivals, uh, which was a bit challenging. But did that damage your brand then in terms of nationally? Possibly, but I was still doing the festivals. Like I could have went to the UK and done quite better at a certain stage, yeah. but I always wanted to just do things here. So I wasn't too worried about like a national brand or anything. Yeah. Um. But at the same time, obviously, if you're up in a club every week uh, in Dublin and suddenly you're not there, you're going to be kind of things move on. But I'd also seen that in the 2000s, people weren't even g- giving a damn. So yeah. I was feeling that you could put on a playlist yeah. in a club in Dublin at the time and people wouldn't even have so... I also felt that it was time. Yeah. And then I had kids as well, so you don't want to be on the road all the time, you know what I mean? So you went, you did, you kind of did drive time, you did night time then as well, weekly, yeah. weeknights for ages and stuff mm. like that. And then there was a huge change in Red FM, there was a whole kind of rebrand. Yeah, they made a, in fairness, they made a surgical, um, there was a, it was an attack. Re, rebrand <laughs> in 2014. Uh, it was a bit of a shock to me because I felt something was happening, but to cut a long story short, uh, I was a bit, um, a bit, uh, a bit of a shock to my system, but at the same time, 
a really good uh, shock to the system. And so you were... I was removed, but I was brought back in. But am but I right in saying you, you kind of put this post on social media and you must have felt like the outpour of love for you was phenomenal from what I remember. It went viral. Like yeah, where you said that you were lucky that you got into the position that you yeah, were yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. It's a simple thing for me is that I was looking forward rather yeah, than looking back, even though we are talking about the back here. Yeah. So for me, it's just a simple thing. You can, something can happen and you can kind of go complaining about it. But I knew in my heart that I could respect the decision, even though, you know, like I, I would be big on kind of loyalty or whatever. And in fairness, maybe the decision was a bit wrong. So I was called back in a couple of weeks later and I I'm, I made a decision to, yeah, continue doing my weekend stuff. And here we are. Yeah, that's a long time ago. No, that's like seven years ago. Was, so yeah, yeah. I'm he, quite happy. And in fairness, I'm doing a lot of stuff with them that they've supported. Like we did a lot of stuff with Cork Pride. Like we're doing a lot of work with Black on Red for the 20th uh, anniversary. And we've, yeah. got, we've actually got a bit of funding, which is, which is rare cool. for anything I'm involved in. Someone exterior got us funding to do uh, special shows with... Uh, some artists who wouldn't normally be kind of getting the coverage we'd say on Red. Yeah. Most of them are from the background of music I play in, which is hip-hop, R&B and, yeah. and uh, Afrobeats. Uh, most of them are coming from different kind of marginalized backgrounds yeah. in yeah. some ways, I suppose you could you could say it. But I've got 10 artists, I think eight or 10, we're going to be doing some sh- special shows in the new year. I've set up a project called The New School uh, this year, which is a platform for young people through hip-hop to do uh, lots of positive stuff. So I'm doing a documentary voiced by young people on the history of hip-hop. Cool. I've got kids as young as my own, Marvin, who's nine, uh, my daughter, my niece, uh, loads of the kids I'm working with in different direct provision places, yeah. uh, loads of kids I'm working with in new clubs and talker and places like that. I might get some of the people from Cork Life Centre. Uh, some of the other people that I'm working with, I just want to get their voices out there more. And we're going to be doing some podcasting stuff maybe on my own podcast with lots of them as well. So yeah, um, you have your own podcast as well, haven't you? Yeah, which I set up originally and I've just been in the last couple of months I've been kind of toying what to do with it. But um, in fairness, D, who's next door in Chapter did some brilliant branding on it. Yeah, So i got yeah. to send a shout out to her because I really admire what she's been doing over the years. Uh, she's a friend of mine from the Henry's days as well. And... I interviewed a couple of the people I wanted to interview and then a couple of the other ones got tied up and I've been kind of going, I was so busy doing some of the stuff with young people at the moment that I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Till recently I've decided that I'm going to use my podcast in 2022 mainly as a platform for the stuff we're doing with young people. Mm. So there's a traveller group I'm working with hopefully soon of girls, teenage girls. I want to get their stories out there because I want to hear it. Yeah, And it's almost like that's going to be more exciting to me yeah. than even interviewing some of the people that I was interviewing from the music scene over the years. There are stories that I want to get out there from that as well. Like I had Jim Comet and Jerome and people like that. Yeah. And I want to get Craig and Shane, obviously. And actually, the night before uh, our friend um, Andrew McDonough, DJ Fork, died, yeah. I was only talking to someone else about how he had agreed to come on my podcast. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. And sometimes you got to do it before you, you get... You can't the, wait. Exactly. Yeah. So that that actually got me thinking a little bit that there, I still want to get some stories out there because there's certain people you almost have to kind of grab and bring into the yeah, studio. Yeah. Like, you know, you didn't have to do much persuading when it came I'm to sure. me. <laughs> but, but you still have a great story to tell. But though. there's other people yeah. you have to kind of, and it's, there's stuff that's been lost. 
Yeah. Like there's there's a culture, there's flyers out yeah. there, which is throwaway stuff and people yeah. throw it away. But there are things that... They'll be remembered in decades to come. Yeah. And, uh, and they can inspire younger now. people, yeah. importantly, I think, because it's all about what's coming for the next yeah, generation. So music can be an outlet. As I say, we've, we've all got our, our situations when it comes mm. to the head. Yeah. So music and all that. So it can be kind of, um. that's the way I look at it. So I definitely want to do a bit more. I want to kind of put a bit more meaning into my own podcast. Let's put it that way. In many ways, you've kind of what you set out to, to do in college with, with journalism and stuff. In a, in a funny way, it's kind of ended up that way. Yeah, I do a lot of, I've, I've always written in fairness to the echo of giving me a column. I don't know how they've, kept me for so long like it's been nearly 20 years I've been writing for them yeah and I've been literally writing I was a hip-hop column or uh, but on on broader stuff as well so I've been always sort of writing about stuff and I had a blog and all that when that thing was going but it's kind of um you were doing social media when no one else was doing it I always said that like I mean yeah you had MySpace and Bebo and all of those when when other people were kind of looking what the hell is going on shout outs to the Bebo top 16 (laughs) but it it is kind of how do I say it? It's just you've got a platform and it's just spreading the word like you're doing yeah. it here, right? Yeah. Spreading people's stories. You you just do what you can in whatever realm it is, whether it's doing a mixtape, whether it's posting something on Bebo, writing something the Echo, yeah. uh, doing a podcast. It's just you use what you've got. like. And the cool thing is, no, we have lots of avenues to do things. Which That's why the, the podcasting thing is pretty cool. You don't need to be a wealthy kind of like, you know, invest loads of millions That's into right, it. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? And, and it's, it's kind of cool. like pirate radio, Stevie. Yeah, there's that? a bit, there's a bit of that there. Like you know, there is a bit of the just the DIY. Except it's legal this time, but yeah, yeah, the DIY. <laughs> the guards won't be knocking on the door. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, the DIY thing. I remember when I used to um in pirate radio in Blarney Street, the landlord used to collect the rent on Monday night, yeah. and I was on, and I could never get comfortable because I thought he was going to be just like, like, who have you got in the studio with you? What are you doing? Is this? Yeah. Well, like, he never cared. In the end, he actually became my own landlord, and he knew there was a pirate station there. But it's funny how it goes over the years. I, I was actually thinking of the way in when we did, uh, when you were in Fota. Yeah, that's right. Remember yeah. we did... Um, a silent disco, was a it? A silent disco. Yeah. And the, the silent disco guys were late. From Dublin. Motorway. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. I think it was myself and KC were that's doing right. it. And uh, all the kids were there. Like, yeah. And the, the silent disco stuff hadn't happened. And I think I just had to play tunes. Eventually but, they came, but they came about an hour and a half late uh, or something like that. And kids aren't going waiting around oh, for an hour. Yeah, like, yeah, you know? They were there, like, but yeah. they were just kind of... I think we just had to give them sweets or something. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny, like, because they say, like, don't work with kids and animals. And <laughs> photo was kids and animals. Yeah, it was it wasn't their fault. No. <laughs> but uh, it's funny how it goes, man. But yeah, it's, it's kind of cool the way... Um, it's always just kind of just keep yourself excited, like, you know. So, Stevie, we were talking about you being a sole trader. You know, when you kicked that off, was it easy for you to pick up work? Like, like, or, or, or did you have to prove yourself? How, how did that work? Actually, it's, it's interesting because I know it's the technical term as sole trader, but yeah. I've always just been, been my own manager or whatever. Of course. Right? And it's always been on relationships, word of mouth. Yeah. So I have always done that social media kind of t- set yeah. of things, even yeah. before social media. Yeah. But it's always been a word of mouth thing. So you do a party. I'll never forget just a, an interesting off story of it. I remember this guy, this woman, she worked in a cafe down the road for me and she said, look, I, I'd love to get I'd love to get you to DJ at my wedding. And yeah. I was like, look, I don't really do weddings, but like, what, what are you into? She said, I love soul and Motown. And yeah. I said, oh, cool. That's my kind of thing. So I might yeah. do it. 
get the Papazitas, they're the best Motown band yeah. in the country, get them all these And then she was like, okay. She got onto them and they were, it was a bit too, they, it was more of a lower key thing. Their budget mm. was lower. They said they just wanted a DJ. So I said, look, I'll DJ and I'll DJ if I'm free. I don't normally do weddings, but I'll do it. Yeah. And then she goes, it's in January the 3rd. And I was like, okay, well, I definitely won't be working on January yeah. the 3rd. Let's yeah. do it. Like, and it's a Sunday night. And I was like, Sunday night or whatever. This is weird. Like, but like, I'll do it. So it's yeah. Maryborough Hotel on a Sunday night. Yeah. And I never forget the weather was stormy and this and that. And I went and she said, it's no alcohol. So I said, geez, this is this is an interesting one. Yeah. But I had a preconceived notion, right, that this was going to be like a boring thing. And then I realized that it was kind of like from a Christian community, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. This is about 10 years ago. And I never forget, I went out there, right? I've been doing parties all over Christmas. And I had the prejudice of like, oh, these guys are not drinking. I, I was off drink myself like yeah. for six or seven years at the time. But I was like, I'll never forget. It was the best party I'd done for ages. They were dancing more than anyone. They weren't yeah. had this whole alcohol thing that we had. Yeah. The hang-ups about it. But everyone at that party, there must have been about 10 of the people and they all get married really early as well. They're like yeah. 23 to getting married whereas we don't get married till our 30s these yeah. days. And I got about 10 gigs out of it. And it's because, like, you know, it's a word of mouth situation. So, and that has always been the case, is it? So like you, you mentioned about the whole idea of playing Fela and the next thing, yeah, yeah, all the promoter see. So word of mode is yeah, but you, but you have to like if someone's content like it's a matter of just replying to yeah. keeping the network going yeah and not ignoring people definitely not tur- not turning up like you know what yeah. I mean uh like there's people turning up late I don't know how many rappers uh even DJs I remember re- ringing a friend of mine one night we were DJing together in the Savoy and he's like oh I'm in the bat like I'll be in and uh, it was eleven o'clock we were de- oh yeah and I was like listen man come on. It's just not my, I, I like to be there. And in fairness, Greg and Shane, um, we were there always about an hour or two before and just playing the music and just getting into it, being there early, fixing the sound. Yeah. And in fairness, they, they were more or less the sound engineers for me because yeah. Henry's wasn't exactly the, the, the best when it came to yeah. that. They were fixing Y-Dex before we went on. But like, that's one of the reasons why you keep it going. But that whole thing of like, if it is like a, as a sole trader, it's particularly, it's down to you, but it's also cool that you're not going to mess it up, like, because you know that you're reliable. So that's actually a pretty good thing that as long as the technical side of it goes, if the car works and if you can get there, yeah, you're good. So I ask every guest two questions uh, at the end of the podcast. So the first one I'd have is, what tips would you give an individual for building their brand? Because in your case, I'm thinking of someone in the music industry. So what, like, what tips would you give somebody? Try to be consistent anyway and and stick to your guns. Like I can talk about, I have a visual, um, a visual um, sort of thing about my brand here almost. Yeah. But I know that it's kind of what the actual brand is. It's, yeah. it's reliable. So yeah, I get random. And to be honest, when things have been so bad in the last year or two, yeah. I've had a call or one or two situations out of nowhere that someone I would have actually done some work with 20 years ago Mm. or someone's kid or someone whose dad remembers me DJing or his mum or something and you you might get a bit of work out of that or whatever. But I do think uh, sticking to your guns and just being reliable as a a professional in that regard. And the other one then is uh, what tip would you give a business? So in your case, like you've been through it with the likes of the pavilion and stuff like that. 
Like, what tip would you give somebody? Okay. Like, even putting Number on an event. Number one tip, anyway, is don't get me involved. Uh, but putting on an event, yeah. Like, I just, it's the same thing. It's just being professional. And, yeah. and it's something that, like, over the years, like, I've done a lot of shows in lockdown with uh, The Good Room, who are Magic Nights. Uh, we're doing one in Fitzgerald's Park. We did one in the summer. The City Council have got them in to do it. Yes. Their expertise. Yeah which is brilliant because the city council can do certain things themselves, but they've got the expert promoters yeah. in there who do live at St. Luke's who are behind some of the path. They did a Takes a Village Festival down in Trebulgan, which is brilliant. I was down there recently. They've done all these festivals and they're proper pros. So the good room are the promoters. And it's great that they'll hire the best sound, the best lights. And it's just having the whole, like get it, get the experts in their get field. The Business-wise, I would just say, yeah, just trying to have your own angle is the main thing. I mean, that's what I would always respect. But like I'm working with a lot of people now that I worked with 20 years ago and you have a solid relationship of two-way reliability on both ends. Yeah. But I'm the last person you want to be given business advice. You have no advice. regrets though in terms of taking on this as a career and stuff over the years? Especially I the still last don't see two a, years. a career, but five years ago I decided to to do the youth work more. Okay, move in a different direction. Yeah, so my only regret, I I might have made a, a, one or two bad choices. I always thought I was a good judge of character, so I might have picked one or two of the, the wrong collaborators with, uh, particularly in, in a couple of years ago, but I've that's all sorted. Now, overall, not really. You just, anything you just, you just learn from. So, yeah, I'm still here. I'm actually delighted to be, to be doing anything, even if it's, like, that's why during the lockdown, I was setting up music in my kitchen, just yeah. playing. I, yeah, I actually love it. Discos and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. No, obviously, career wise and stuff. I, I, I'm trying to do. I set up the new school, and I also set up another project called Everybody Dance, which is about inclusivity. Yeah. So it's covering lots of the parties I'm doing for people with additional needs, mm. and if there is people out there who've got like um, kids or there's some groups and they're looking for a kind of a way to entertain them, there, there might be something you can get in touch with me yeah. about there. So we did it with uh, adults in Clonakilty Co-Action. People come from all over West Cork, mostly adults with additional leads. And we just do parties. Yeah. So I treat that party like I would treat Henry's. Yeah. Uh, so I want I want to kind of uh, amplify a little bit of that and do more of that too. Because like, it really frustrated me, um, like what I was saying earlier, that I see some of these people that, that is not fun. So like I was out in the Down Syndrome Centre. They probably won't mind me. I shouldn't even say it, but like I was out with them I did a party or two for them online and I did a physical one, mm. the one on Forge Hill, the Down Syndrome Centre, Cork. And, and they were telling me they're self-funded and stuff. It's all on fundraisers. And yeah. I was like, this is like what you're doing for for different for people yeah. like and their families yeah. and the supports that are needed. I do think um, I want to do uh, more of that stuff. Everybody Dance is going to be a kind of a, a thing where I'll probably pursue a little bit more of that. But um. Yeah, so I forget what the question was. Advice for business. Yeah, definitely have your own angle and st- stay stay in your own lane and just definitely be nice to people. We could have talked for hours, Stevie. There's loads of stuff we didn't cover, um, but it's been a fascinating career and uh, and I don't think it's over. I think we're, you know, I, oh, no, I think we're halfway through, by. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm only starting. Yeah, I'm so. only a young uh, a young person yet so no that's when you work with youngsters you get the the best thing I, I keep saying it's not like you're kind of a, yeah. it's a two way street so you're getting the kind of youthful energy so I, I definitely feel hungry for more but uh, yeah looking forward to doing some more now and uh, hopefully next year is going to be good fingers crossed so thanks again for coming in
Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Come on, Corinthians. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the 24 Stories podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and get in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn at 24 Stories Tribe. I'll be back next week with a brand new guest. 